Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday is when Donald Trump goes on triumph. And I'll be live and recording for the right of the podcast. People who want to listen to the exact same thing that is going on in America. Just hours away now from the um, trial for Donald Trump. Live with the truth news. This is live images and sound from the Trump administration trial. He does not have access to that account. 
So their rapid response from the Trump team will look very different this time. Good morning, Hallie. Thank you, Senator Patrick Leahy is presiding over this impeachment trial. They said the Pledge of Allegiance to Prayer. Let's let's get in sooner. We are now seated. If there's no objection, the journal the proceedings of the trial are approved to date. I ask the Sergeant Arms to make the proclamation. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silence on pain of imprisonment while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the article of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, former president of the United States. Chamber, the managers on the part of the House representatives, and counsel for the former president of the United States. Mr. President. Majority leaders recognize. Mr. President, in a moment, I will call up a resolution to govern the structure of the second impeachment trial of President of Donald John Don, Donald John Trump. It's been agreed to by the House managers, the former president's counsel, and is co-sponsored by the Republican leader. It is bipartisan. It's our solemn constitutional duty to conduct a fair and honest impeachment trial of the charges against former President Trump, the gravest charges ever brought against a president of the United States in American history. This resolution provides for a fair trial, and I urge the Senate to adopt it. Mr. President, I send a resolution to the desk on my behalf and that of the Republican leader for the organizing of the next phases of this trial. Article report. Senate Resolution 47 to provide for related procedures concerning the article of impeachment against Donald John Trump, former president of the United States. The question occurs on the adoption of the resolution. I ask for the yeas and nays. Is there a sufficient second? It appears to be there is a sufficient second. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Baldwin. Ms. Baldwin, aye. Mr. Barrasso. Mr. Barrasso, aye. Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett, aye. Mrs. Blackburn. Mrs. Blackburn, Aye. All right, well, before we get into the trial itself, they're right now settling the issue of uh, rules, which have been hammered out, but are uh, being voted on. Let me bring in uh, uh, Casey Hunt to give us a little more explanation. Casey. Sure, Lester. Right now, uh, they are voting on, as you said, the rules that will govern how this will unfold. It's simple, straightforward things like what time will the day begin, how many hours will each side have to argue their cases, 
uh, what other votes uh, will be allowed, one on witnesses, for example. Uh, this is uh, required in part because there were some last-minute changes related to the scheduling uh, of the trial, because originally one of former President Trump's lawyers had requested some time off uh, for the Sabbath, uh, the Jewish uh, holidays, on starting at sundown on Friday through Saturday. Now, the normal written rules would require that the trial take place on Friday and Saturday and have Sunday off. So they actually all have to agree that, okay, actually now we are going to meet on Friday, we're going to meet on Saturday, and they also are going to meet on Sunday, which is out of the ordinary as well. Essentially trying to power through until there is a verdict in this trial. And that, I think, speaks to the larger point here, which is that both Republicans and Democrats, for very different reasons, uh, but nonetheless uh, with the same uh, outcome or motivation, they want a relatively speedy trial. Uh, Democrats believe that the evidence uh, has already been out there in public, uh, that they all experienced it together, uh, and that that means that it's not as uh, imperative that witnesses be called to outline additional evidence here. Uh, and Republicans, frankly, I think we're going to see a vote later today that, that likely shows that they think that this process is not one that should go forward at all. At least a great many of them are likely to vote that this is not a constitutional process. That, of course, is the debate uh, that is set up for today. So just a little bit of a quirk of Senate rules that, that have us going through this alphabetical list uh, for the roll call. Um, and not necessarily expecting any dissent uh, here at all. Once this is finished, then, of course, uh, we're going to go into some of the actual arguments that we're going to see unfold today. And also, we do expect another roll call vote later on this afternoon, so a process that will look similar to this. That one is actually going to tell us more, because it is going to be the answer uh, to that question uh, as to whether or not they actually believe the trial should go forward. And remember, there were five Republicans who voted on a similar question a couple of weeks ago who said, this no, this trial should happen. It should go forward. It's the right thing to do. And there were 45 Republicans who said, uh, no, that's not the case. So one thing I'll be looking for is whether there's any discrepancy between those two, and what does that tell us uh, about whether there may be more more Republicans who will be willing to vote to convict this president? Lester. All right, Casey, thanks. I want to quickly go to Andrea Mitchell as we wait for them to complete this vote. And Andrea, let's talk about appearances and what lessons may have been learned uh, by Democrats in the last impeachment that we will we'll see played out here. Lester, the arguments last time were very, uh, very procedural, very legalistic, uh, constitutional, yes. But what you're going to see in this trial beyond today, today will be constitutional arguments, but you're going to see visual examples, the testimony, the visual evidence of what happened on that day from the police perspective as well as the members, the House members, the senators who were all witnesses as well as being victims of the five people who died. So this is going to be not a court trial, but it is going to be a very much, a very cinematic, if you will, and that is the, what they're trying to do. They're trying to get away from the legalism of the impeachment trial that frankly failed from their perspective because the president was not convicted and all the arguments about whether he had the right to make a phone call to Ukraine was not as visceral. But this is trying, even if they do not convict him, they're trying to show the American people the extent of what happened and try to make him uh, politically impossible to have power going forward or even run for office. Of course, failing conviction, he would be able to run for office again for another term as president or other federal office. And interestingly today, we got some more legal arguments from the prosecutors, from the House managers, against the brief that was filed by the defense last night, arguing that the constitutional arguments are not valid, and particularly arguing that that 
First Amendment protection does not apply in an impeachment case. So a president of the United States could, under the First Amendment, say something as outrageous as uh, Canada should invade us or confirm the American flag or could wear a, a white robe and launch in a KKK plan for a Jewish neighborhood. But that president could still be impeached, even though he or she would be protected under the First Amendment. So those are the arguments that they're going to be making. They're going to try to demolish the constitutional arguments today. And they have a lot of allies among some Republican conservative scholars. Chuck Cooper, a very well-known conservative lawyer who's represented John Bolton and others, who came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, saying that there is absolutely an ability to impeach a former president, especially one, and they will keep pointing this out, who was impeached while he was still in office. And so the argument that has been made by Lindsey Graham in the last 24 hours and others, that it's not fair to uh, carry, have a trial for someone who was impeached after he has left office, he was impeached while he was still president of the United States. And that's going to be the constitutional argument, Lester, that we're going to be hearing throughout the day today. Tomorrow, as you point out, though, it's going to be very different. It's going to be visual. It will be, they hope, the House managers hope, impactful. That's their best argument. All right, uh, Andrew, thank you. I want to bring in NBC News legal analyst Neil Cantial, who is an acting solicitor and uh, general under President Obama, and kind of continue the thought, uh, Neil, that uh, I will, <clears throat> I will be doing this tomorrow as well, uh, and through the weekend. Sounds like are relying on this idea that it has a number of problems, starting with the text of the Constitution and the fact that we have impeached former officials before. But what Andrea is pointing out is that the pre President Trump was impeached while he was president for conduct while he was president. The vote took place then. And as like Judge Michael McConnell, who's a very prominent conservative jurist, says, that's the end of the matter. That settles it. This whole question of former official doesn't matter because Trump wasn't a former official. And Lester, the most telling thing in Trump's briefs to the Senate, his legal briefs, is he never once answers that argument that Andrea points out. Um, and that to me is devastating because as a lawyer, you know, you can always tell your own story. The question is, can you answer the argument on the other side? And Trump's lawyers didn't even really bother to try. This is, we're, we're talking right now, obviously, about... That's Lester Holt's voice. ...the constitutionality of, of pursuing, but as we move into the trial on the charges themselves, will we still see a largely procedural argument on behalf of the president's lawyers? Uh, I think that they will still keep making the procedural arguments wherever they can because it serves them politically. This is something that Casey pointed out a moment ago. It's a way to dodge having to take an ultimate position on whether what Trump did was right or wrong on January 6th and the events leading up to it. They can just say, hey, it's not within my power. And so at every turn, I expect Trump's two lawyers right. to be making the procedural objections. All right. Uh, yeah, we believe that the uh, the vote has now passed for the rules, and so let's rejoin the trial. I ask the minimal president of the United States, notwithstanding the expiration of his term in that office, Mr. Manager Raskin, are you a proponent or opponent of this question? Mr. Castor, are you a proponent or opponent of this question? 
Manager Raskin, your party may proceed first. We'll be able to reserve rebuttal time if you wish. Mr. Raskin, you're recognized. Thank you very much, Mr. President, distinguished members of the Senate. Good afternoon. My name is Jamie Raskin. It's my honor to represent the people of Maryland's 8th Congressional District in the House and also to serve as the lead House manager. And, uh, Mr. President, we will indeed reserve time for rebuttal. Thank you. Because I've been a professor of constitutional law for three decades, I know there are a lot of people who are dreading endless lectures about the Federalist Papers here. Please breathe easy, okay? I remember well W.H. Auden's line that a professor is someone who speaks while other people are sleeping. You will not be hearing extended lectures from me because our case is based on cold, hard facts. It's all about the facts. President Trump has sent his lawyers here today to try to stop the Senate from hearing the facts of this case. They want to call the trial over before any evidence is even introduced. Their argument is that if you commit an impeachable offense in your last few weeks in office, you do it with constitutional impunity. You get away with it. In other words, conduct that would be a high crime and misdemeanor in your first year as president, in your second year as president, in your third year as president, and for the vast majority of your fourth year as president, you can suddenly do in your last few weeks in office without facing any constitutional accountability at all. This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. A January exception. And everyone can see immediately why this is so dangerous. It's an invitation to the president to take his best shot at anything he may want to do on his way out the door, including using violent means to lock that door, to hang on to the Oval Office at all costs, and to block the peaceful transfer of power. In other words, the January exception is an invitation to our founder's worst nightmare. And if we buy this radical argument that President Trump's lawyers advance, we risk allowing January 6th to become our future. And what will that mean for America? Think about it. What will the January exception mean to future generations if you grant it? I'll show you. We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. 
The United States Senate just walked through Actually, I think this is just video of it still happening. This is video of uh, the insurrection happening. Language advised. As I sit here and watch it happen again, because they have to review it, just makes me uh, sick to my stomach.
All it is is yelling. And all it is is animalistic craziness is what it is. Thank God for the man that is or was is not about the good people of Arizona. In the White House. And, uh, just not. This will be in multiple parts. This is just part one. Language advised. Sorry about the language. Video still going.
I'll come back when we come back to live television. We are back on television now. You ask what a high crime and misdemeanor is under our constitution? That's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. And if the president's arguments for a January exception are upheld, then even if everyone agrees that he's culpable for these events, even if the evidence proves as we think it definitively does, that the president incited a violent insurrection on the day Congress met to finalize the presidential election, he would have you believe there is absolutely nothing the Senate can do about it. No trial, no facts. He wants you to decide that the Senate is powerless at that point. That can't be right. The transition of power is always the most dangerous moment for democracies. Every historian will tell you that. We just saw it in the most astonishing way. We lived through it. And you know what? The framers of our Constitution knew it. That's why they created a Constitution with an oath written into it that binds the president from his very first day in office until his very last day in office and every day in between. Under that Constitution, and under the the, pre- the President of the United States is forbidden to commit high crimes and misdemeanors against the people at any point that he's in office. Indeed, that's one specific reason the impeachment, conviction, and disqualification powers exist, to protect us against presidents who try to overrun the power of the people in their elections and replace the rule of law with the rule of mobs. These powers must apply even if the president commits his offenses in his final weeks in office. In fact, that's precisely when we need them the most, because that's when elections get attacked. Everything that we know about the language of the Constitution, the framers' original understanding and intent, prior Senate practice, and common sense confirms this rule. Let's start with the text of the Constitution. Which in Article 1, Section 2 gives the House the sole power of impeachment. When the President commits high crimes in the we exercise that power on January 13th. The President, it is undisputed, committed his offense while he was President. And it is undisputed that we impeached him while he was president. There can be no doubt that this is a valid and legitimate impeachment. And there can be no doubt that the Senate has the power to try this impeachment. We know this because Article 1, Section 3 gives the Senate the sole power to try all impeachments. The Senate has the power, the sole power, to try all impeachments. All means all, and there are no exceptions to the rule. Because the Senate has jurisdiction to try all impeachments, it most certainly has jurisdiction to try this one. It's really that simple. The vast majority of constitutional scholars who studied the question and weighed in on the proposition being advanced by the President, this January exception, heretofore unknown, agree with us 
And that includes the nation's most prominent conservative legal scholars, including former 10th Circuit Judge Michael McConnell, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, Ronald Reagan Solicitor General Charles Freed, luminary Washington lawyer Charles Cooper, among hundreds of other constitutional lawyers and professors. I commend the, the people I named their, their recent writings to you in the newspapers over the last several days. And all of the key precedents, along with detailed explanation of the constitutional history and textual analysis, appear in the trial brief we filed last week and the reply brief that we filed very early this morning. I'll spare you a replay, but I want to highlight a few key points from constitutional history that strike me as compelling in foreclosing President Trump's argument that there's a secret January exception hidden away in the Constitution. The first point comes from English history, which matters because as Hamilton wrote, England provided the model from which the idea of this institution has been borrowed. And it would have been immediately obvious to anyone familiar with that history that former officials could be held accountable for their abuses while in office. Every single impeachment of a government official that occurred during the framers' lifetime concerned a former official. A former official. Indeed, the most famous of these impeachments occurred while the framers gathered in Philadelphia to write the Constitution. It was the impeachment of Warren Hastings, the former governor general of the British colony of Bengal, and a corrupt guy. The framers knew all about it, and they strongly supported the impeachment. In fact, the Hastings case was invoked by name at the convention. It was the only specific impeachment case that they discussed at the convention. It played a key role in their adoption of the high crimes and misdemeanor standard. And even though everyone there surely knew that Hastings had left office two years before his impeachment trial began, not a single framer, not one, raised a concern when Virginia and George Mason held up the Hastings impeachment as a model for us in the writing of our Constitution. The early state constitutions supported the idea, too. Every single state constitution in the 1780s either specifically said that former officials could be impeached or were entirely consistent with the idea. In contrast, not a single state constitution prohibited trials of former officials. As a result, there was an overwhelming presumption in favor of allowing legislatures to hold former officials accountable in this way. Any departure from that norm would have been a big deal, and yet there's no sign anywhere that that ever happened. Some states, including Delaware, even confined impeachment only to officials who had already left office. This confirms that removal was never seen as the exclusive purpose of impeachment in America. The goal was always about accountability, protecting society, and deterring official corruption. Delaware matters for another reason. Writing about impeachment in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton explained that the president of America would stand upon no better ground than a governor of New York and upon worse ground than the governors of Maryland and Delaware. He thus emphasized that the president is even more accountable than officials in Delaware, where, as I noted, the Constitution clearly allowed impeachment of former officials. 
and nobody involved in the convention ever said that the framers meant to reject this widely accepted, deeply rooted understanding of the word impeachment when they wrote it into our Constitution. The convention debates instead confirm this interpretation. There, while discussing impeachment, the framers repeatedly returned to the threat of presidential corruption aimed directly at elections, the heart of self-government. Almost perfectly anticipating President Trump, William Davey of North Carolina explained impeachment was for a president who spared, quote, no effort or means whatever to get himself reelected. Hamilton and Federalist One said the greatest danger to republics and the liberties of the people comes from political opportunists who begin as demagogues and end as tyrants and the people who are encouraged to follow them. President Trump may not know a lot about the framers, but they certainly knew a lot about him. Given the framers' intense focus on danger to elections and the peaceful transfer of power, it is inconceivable that they designed impeachment to be a dead letter in the president's final days in office when opportunities to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power would be most tempting and most dangerous as we just saw. Mr. Saragusa. Saragusa, I should say. Colorado. to try to 
South Florida and Louisiana. Ultimately, President Adams caught him. He turned over the evidence to Congress. Four days later, the House of Representatives impeached him. A day after that, this body, the United States Senate, expelled him from office. So he was very much a former official. Despite that, the House went forward with its impeachment proceeding in order to disqualify him from ever again holding federal office. And so the Senate proceeded with the trial with none other than Thomas Jefferson presiding. Now, Blunt argued that the Senate couldn't proceed because he had already been expelled. But here's the interesting thing. He expressly disavowed any claim that former officials can't ever be impeached. You know, unlike President Trump, he was very clear that he respected and understood that he could not even try to argue that ridiculous position. Even impeached Senator Blunt recognized the inherent absurdity of that view. Here's what he said. I certainly never shall contend that an officer may first commit an offense and afterwards avoid by resigning his office. That's the point. And there was no doubt because the founders were around to confirm that that was their intent and the obvious meaning of what is in the Constitution. Fast forward 80 years later, arguably the most important precedent that this body has to consider. The trial of former Secretary of War, William Belknap. I'm not gonna go into all the details, but just in short, in 1876, the House discovered that he was involved in a massive kickback scheme. Hours before the House committee that discovered this conduct released its report documenting the scheme, Belknap literally rushed to the White House to resign, tender his resignation to President Ulysses Grant to avoid any further inquiry into his misconduct and, of course, to avoid being disqualified from holding federal office in the future. Well, later that day, aware of the resignation, what did the House do? The House moved forward and unanimously impeached him, making clear its power to impeach a former official. And when his case reached the Senate, this body, Belknap made the exact same argument that President Trump is making today. That you all lack jurisdiction, any power to try him because he's a former official. Now, many senators at that time, when they heard that argument, literally, they were sitting in the same chair as you all are sitting in today. They were outraged by that argument. Outraged. You can read their comments in the record. They knew it was a dangerous, dangerous argument with dangerous implications. It would literally mean that a president could betray their country, leave office, and avoid impeachment and disqualification entirely. And that's why, in the end, the United States Senate decisively voted that the Constitution required them to proceed with the trial. The Belknap case is clear precedent that the Senate must proceed with this trial since it rejected pretrial dismissal, affirmed its jurisdiction, and moved with full consideration of the merits. Now, Belknap ultimately was not convicted, but only after a thorough public inquiry into his misconduct, which created a record of 
done his wrongdoing. It ensured his accountability and deterred anyone else from considering such corruption by making clear that it was intolerable. The trial served important constitutional purposes. Now, given that precedent that I've described to you, given all that that precedent imparts, you could imagine my surprise, lead manager Raskin's surprise when we were reviewing the trial brief filed by the president in which his counsel insists that the Senate actually didn't decide anything in the Belknap case. They say, these are not my words, I'll quote from their trial brief, it cannot be read as foreclosing an argument that they never dealt with. Never dealt with? The Senate didn't debate this question for two hours. The Senate debated this very question for two weeks. The Senate spent an additional two weeks deliberating on the jurisdictional question. And at the end of those deliberations, they decided decisively that the Senate has jurisdiction and that it could proceed, that it must proceed to a full trial. And by the way, unlike Belknap, as we know, President Trump was not impeached for run-of-the-mill corruption, misconduct. He was impeached for inciting a violent insurrection, an insurrection where people died in this building, an insurrection that desecrated our seat of government. And if Congress were just to stand completely aside in the face of such an extraordinary crime against the republic, it would invite future presidents to use their power without any fear of accountability. And none of us, I know this, none of us, no matter our party or our politics, wants that. Now, we've gone through the highlights of the precedent, and I think it's important that you know, as lead manager Raskin mentioned, that scholars overwhelmingly who have reviewed this same precedent have all come to the same conclusion, that the Senate must hear this case. Let's go through just a few short examples. To start, all of us, I know, are familiar with the Federalist Society. Some of you may know Stephen Calabresi personally. He's the co-founder of the Federalist Society. He actually was the chairman of the board in 2019. He was the first president of the Yale Federalist Society chapter board, a position that I understand Senator Howley later held. Here is what Mr. Calabresi has to say. On January 21st, he issued a public letter stating, our carefully considered views of the law lead all of us to agree that the Constitution permits the impeachment, conviction, and disqualification of former officers, including presidents. And by the way, he's not the only one, as lead manager Raskin said. President Reagan's former solicitor general, among many others. Another prominent conservative scholar, known to many of you, again personally, is former Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, my circuit, Judge Michael McConnell. He was nominated by President George W. Bush. He was confirmed by this body unanimously. Senator Hatch, many of you served with, he had this to say about Judge McConnell, that he's an honest man. He calls it as he sees it, and he's beholden to no one and no group. Well, what does Judge McConnell have to say about the question that you're debating this afternoon? He said the following, given the impeachment of Mr. Trump was legitimate, the text makes clear that the Senate has 
has power to try that impeachment. You heard the manager Raskin mention another lawyer, Chuck Cooper, who's a prominent conservative lawyer here in Washington, has represented former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He issued an editorial just two days ago, very powerful, observing that scholarship in this question is mature substantially. And that ultimately the arguments that President Trump is championing serious weaknesses. Finally, I mean, we've gone through a lot of scholars. I'll, I'll just I'll finish on this one. There's another scholar that I know some of you know and, and some of you have actually spoken with recently. Up until just a few weeks ago, he was a recognized champion, champion of the view that the Constitution authorizes the impeachment of former officials. And that is Professor Jonathan Turley. Let me show you what I mean. These are his words. First, in a very detailed study, thorough study, he explained that, quote, the resignation from office does not prevent trial on articles of impeachment. That's Professor Turley's words. Same piece. He celebrated the Belknap trial. He described it as a corrective measure that helped the system regain legitimacy. He wrote another article. He's written several on this topic. This one is actually it's a 146 page study, very detailed. And in that study, he said, quote, that the decision in Belknap was correct in its view that impeachment historically had extended to former officials, such as Warren Hastings, who you heard the manager Raskin describe. In fact, as you can see, Professor Turley argued that the House could have impeached and the Senate could have tried Richard Nixon after he resigned. His quote on this, very telling, Future presidents could not assume that mere resignation would avoid a trial of their conduct in the United States Senate. Finally, last quote from Professor Turley, that no man in no circumstance can escape the account which he owes to the laws of his country. Not my words, not the manager Raskin's words, Professor Jonathan Turley's words. I agree with him, because he's exactly right. Now, a question one might reasonably ask after going through all those quotes from, from such noted jurists and scholars is, why is there such agreement on this topic? Well, the reason is pretty simple, because it's what the Constitution says. I want to walk you through three provisions of the Constitution that make clear that the Senate must try this case. Let's start with what the Constitution says about Congress's power in Article I. You heard lead manager Raskin make this point, but it's worth underscoring. Article I, Section 2, gives the House sole power of impeachment. Article I, Section 3, gives the Senate the sole power to try all impeachments. Now, based on President Trump's argument, one would think that language includes caveats, exceptions, It doesn't say impeachment of current civil officers. It doesn't say impeachment of those still in office. The framers didn't mince words. They provided express, absolute, unqualified grants of jurisdictional power to the House to impeach and to the Senate to try all impeachments. Not some. Former Judge McConnell
that we talked about earlier. He provides very effective textual analysis of this provision. You can see it up here on the slide. I'll, I'll just give you the highlight. He says, and I'll quote, this is Judge McConnell. Given that the impeachment of Mr. Trump was legitimate, the text makes clear that the Senate has power to try that impeachment. Now, again, here is what is pretty interesting. We listened to this argument in our trial brief, which we filed over a week ago. And we laid it out again, step by step so that you could just consider it and so that opposing counsel could consider it as well. We received President Trump's response yesterday. And the trial brief offers you didn't go through. Wait, your shoes. No. And in fairness, I can't think of any convincing response. I mean, that the Constitution is just exceptionally clear on this point. Now, perhaps they will have something to say today about it, but they did not yesterday. There's another provision worth mentioning here because there's been a lot of confusion about it, and I'm going to try to clear this up. It's the provision on removal and disqualification. Now, we all know the Senate imposes a judgment only when it convicts. Up on the screen, you'll see Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. So with that in mind, the language says that the Senate convicts the judgment shall not extend further than removal and disqualification. That's it. The meaning is clear. The Senate has the power to impose removal, which only applies to current officials, and separately it has the power to impose disqualification, which obviously applies to both current and former officers, but it doesn't have the power to go any further than that. Now, as I understand President Trump's argument, they believe that this language somehow says that disqualification could only follow removal of a current officer, but it doesn't. That interpretation essentially rewrites the Constitution. It adds words that aren't there. I mean, after all, the Constitution does not say removal from office and then disqualification. It doesn't say removal from office followed by disqualification. It simply says the Senate can't do more than two possible sentences, removal and disqualification. And this, by the way, is not the first time that this direct question has been debated in this chamber. 146 years ago, during the Belknap trial, Senator George Edmonds of Vermont, he's one of the most prestigious Republican senators of his time. He sat right where Senator Grassley sits today. He zeroed in on this exact point during the Belknap trial. This is his quote. A prohibition against doing more than two things cannot be turned into a command to do both or neither. And just imagine the consequences of such an absurd interpretation of the Constitution. I mean, if President Trump were right about that language, then officials could commit the most extraordinary... This is opening statements. First day. They have total control over whether they can ever be impeached, and if they are, whether the Senate can try the case. If they want to escape any public inquiry into their misconduct or the risk of disqualification from future office, then it's pretty simple. They could just resign one minute before the House impeaches, or even one minute before the Senate trial, or they could resign during the Senate trial. It's not looking so well. That would effectively eviscerate the Constitution. 
effectively erase disqualification from the Constitution. It would put wrongdoers in charge of whether the Senate can try. Third and final reason why President Trump must stand trial. Provision of Article I of the Constitution. You'll see here on the screen that the Constitution twice describes the accused in an impeachment trial. Here's what I want you to focus on. The interesting thing is notice the words. It refers to a person and a party being impeached. Now again, we know that the framers gave a lot of thought to the words that they chose. They even had a style committee during the Constitutional Convention. They could have written civil officers here. I mean, they did that elsewhere in the Constitution. That would have ultimately limited impeachment trials to current officials. But instead, they used broader language to describe who could be tried by the United States Senate. So who could be on put on trial, rather, for impeachment other than civil officers? Who else could a person or a party be? Well, really, there's only one possible answer, former officers. And again, that, that actually might explain why, during the Belknap trial, Senator Thomas Bayard of Delaware, he later became the Secretary of State for the United States. He, he sat right where Senator Carper is sitting now. He found this point so compelling that he felt compelled to speak out on it. And during the trial, he concluded that the Constitution must allow the impeachment and trial of people and parties who are not civil officers. And the only group that could possibly encompass was former officials like Belknap. And of course, here, like President Trump. And just so we're clear, in full disclosure, this is another argument that was not addressed by President Trump in his rebuttal. And we know why they did Because their argument doesn't square with the plain text of the Constitution. There is one provision that President Trump relies on almost exclusively. Article 2, Section 4. I'm sure you'll see it when they present their arguments. Their argument is that the language you'll see in the screen somehow prevents you from holding this trial by making removal from office an absolute requirement. But again, where does the language say that? Where does it say anything in that provision about your jurisdiction? In fact, this provision isn't even in the part of the Constitution that addresses your authority. It's in Article 2, not Article 1. And it certainly says nothing about former officials. President Trump's interpretation doesn't square with history, originalism, textualism. They did cite one professor, though. Professor Colt is an expert in this field, who they claimed agreed with them that the only purpose of impeachment is removal. Professor Colt's position, which they had to have known because it's, it's in the article that they cite in the brief, is that removal is, quote, not the sole end of impeachment. Actually, in that same article, he describes the view advocated by President Trump's lawyers as having deep flaws. And again, you do not have to take my word for it. You can take
take Professor Kaut's word for it, the professor they cited in their brief, filed yesterday, because he tweeted about it. This is what he had to say. I'm not going to read through it in great detail. I'll just simply give you the highlights. President Trump's brief cites my 2001 article on late impeachment a lot. But in several places, they misrepresent what I wrote quite badly. There are multiple examples of such flat-out misrepresentations. They didn't have to be disingenuous and misleading like this. This key constitutional scholar relied on by President Trump. Said it just right. I have explained in great detail the many reasons why the argument that President Trump advocates for here today is wrong. I just want to close with a note about why it's dangerous. Lead manager Raskin explained that impeachment exists to protect the American people from officials who abuse their power, who betray them. It exists for a case just like this one. Honestly, it, it is hard to imagine a clearer example of how a president could abuse his office inciting violence against a co-equal branch of government while seeking to remain in power after losing an election. Sitting back and watching it unfold. We all know the consequences. Like every one of you, I was in the Capitol on January 6th. I was on the floor with lead manager Raskin. Like every one of you, I was evacuated as this violent mob stormed the Capitol's gates. What you experienced that day, what we experienced that day, what our country experienced that day, is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. And yet that is the rule that President Trump asks you to adopt. I urge you, we urge you, to decline his request, to vindicate the Constitution, to let us try this case. Senators, my name is David Cicilline. I have the honor of representing the 1st Congressional District of Rhode Island. As I hope is now clear from the arguments of Mr. Raskin and Mr. Neguse, <laughs> it's not merely about removing someone from Senator of Rhode Island. Speaking now. To keep each of us safe, to uphold our freedom, to safeguard our democracy. It achieves that by deterring abuse of the extraordinary power that we entrust to our presidents.
from the very first day in office to the very last day. It also ensures accountability for presidents who harm us or our government. In the aftermath of a tragedy, it allows us an opportunity to come together and to heal by working through what happened and reaffirming our constitutional principles. And it authorizes this body and this body alone to disqualify from our political system anybody whose conduct in office proves that they present a danger to the republic. But impeachment would fail to achieve these purposes if you created for the first time ever, despite the words of the framers and the constitution, a January exception, as Mr. Raskin explained. Now, I was a former defense lawyer for many years, and I can understand why President Trump and his lawyers don't want you to hear this case, why they don't want you to see the evidence. But the argument that you lack jurisdiction rests on a purely fictional loophole. Purely fictional. Designed by the former president to escape all accountability for conduct that is truly indefensible under our Constitution. You saw the consequences of his actions on the video that we played earlier. I'd like to emphasize in still greater detail the extraordinary constitutional offense that the former president thinks you have no power whatsoever to adjudicate. While spreading lies about the election outcome and a brazen attempt to retain power against the will of the American people, he incited an armed, angry mob to riot. And not just anywhere, but here, in the seat of our government, in the Capitol, during a joint session of Congress, when the Vice President presided, while we carried out a peaceful transfer of power which was interrupted for the first time in our history. This was a disaster of historic proportion. It was also an unforgivable betrayal of the oath of office of President Trump, the oath he swore, an oath that he sullied and dishonored to advance his own personal interests. And make no mistake about it, as you think about that day, things could have been much worse. As one senator said, they could have killed all of us. It was only the bravery and sacrifice of the police who suffered deaths and injuries as a result of President Trump's actions that prevented greater tragedy. At trial, we will prove with overwhelming evidence that President Trump is singularly and directly responsible for inciting the assault on the Capitol. We will also prove that his dereliction of duty, his desire to seek personal advantage from the mayhem, and his decision to issue tweets further inciting the mob, attacking the vice president, all compounded the already enormous damage. Now virtually every American who saw those events unfold on television was absolutely horrified by the events of January 6th. But we also know how President Trump himself felt about the attack. He told us. Here's what he tweeted at 
as the Capitol was in shambles and as dozens of police officers and other law enforcement officers lay battered and bruised and bloody. Here's what he said. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. Every time I read that tweet, it chills me to the core. The President of the United States sided with the insurrectionists. He celebrated their cause. He validated their attack. He told them, remember this day forever. Hours after they marched through these halls looking to assassinate Vice President Pence, the Speaker of the House, and any of us they could find. Given all that, it's no wonder that President Trump would rather talk about jurisdiction and a supposed January exception, rather than talk about what happened on January 6th. Make no mistake, his arguments are dead wrong. They're distractions from what really matters. The Senate can and should require President Trump to stand trial. My colleagues have already addressed many of President Trump's efforts to escape trial. I'd like to cover the remainder then address the broader issues at stake in this trial. For starters, in an extension of his mistake in reading the Constitution, President Trump insists that he cannot face trial in the Senate because he's merely a private citizen. He references here the Bill of Attainder Clause. But as Mr. Nagus just explained, the Constitution refers to the defendant in an impeachment trial as a person and a party, and certainly he counts as one of those. Let's also apply some common sense. Here's the reason that he now insists on being called the 45th president of the United States rather than citizen Trump. He isn't a randomly selected private citizen. He's a former officer of the United States government. He's a former president of the United States of America. He's treated differently under a law called the Former Presidents Act for four years. We trusted him with more power than anyone else on earth. As a former president who promised on a Bible to use his power faithfully, he can and should answer for whether he kept that promise while bound by it in office. His insistence otherwise is just wrong. And so, so is this claim that there's a slippery slope uh, to impeaching private citizens if you proceed. The trial of a former official for abuses he committed as an official, arising from impeachment that occurred while he was an official, poses absolutely no risk whatsoever of subjecting a private citizen to impeachment for their private conduct. To emphasize the point, President Trump was impeached while he was in office for conduct in office, period. The alternative, once again, is this gender exception which our most powerful officials can commit the most terrible abuses and then resign to leave office and suddenly claim that they're just a private citizen who can't be held accountable at all. In the same vein, President Trump and his lawyers argue that he shouldn't be impeached because it will set a bad precedent 
or impeaching others. But that slippery slope argument is also incorrect. For centuries, the prevailing view has been that former officials are subject to impeachment. And you just heard a full discussion of that. The House has repeatedly acknowledged that fact. But in the vast majority of cases, the House has rightly recognized that an official's resignation or departure makes the extraordinary step of impeachment unnecessary and maybe even unwise. As a House manager rightly explained in the Belknap case, and I quote, there is no likelihood that we shall ever unlimber the clumsy and Sorry about that. President Trump's case, though, is different. The danger has not gone by. His threat to democracy makes any prior abuse by any government official pale in comparison. Moreover, allowing his conduct to pass without the most decisive response would itself create an extraordinary danger to the nation. Inviting further abuse of power and signaling that the Congress of the United States is unable or unwilling to respond to insurrection incited by the president. Think about that. To paraphrase Justice Robert Jackson, who said that that precedent that I just described would lie about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any future president who decided in his final months to make a play for unlimited power. Think of the danger. Here is the rare case in which love of the Constitution and commitment to our democracy required the House to impeach. It's for the same reason the Senate can and must try this case. Next, President Trump will assert that it somehow is significant or it matters uh, that the Chief Justice isn't presiding over this trial. Let me state this very plainly. It does not matter. It is not significant. Under Article 1, Section 3, when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. There is only one person who is President of the United States at a time. Right now, Joseph R. Biden, Jr. is the 46th President of the United States. As a result, the requirement that the Chief Justice preside isn't triggered. Instead, the normal rules of any impeachment of anyone other than the sitting president apply. And under those rules, the president pro tem, Senator Leahy, can preside. And of course, this makes perfect sense. The chief justice presides because when the current president is on trial, if he, chief justice doesn't preside, the vice president could preside. And it would be a conflict for someone to preside over a trial that would become president if there was a conviction. So there isn't that concern when you have a former president on trial or for the matter when you have anyone on trial other than the current president, which is why the Chief Justice presides only in that single case, and why this is exactly the presiding officer the Constitution and the Senate rules require. As a fallback, President Trump and his lawyers may argue today that he should get a free pass on inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government, endangering Congress, because, as he would put it, this impeachment is somehow unconstitutional. So far as I understand it from reading the pleadings in this case, this defense involves cobbling together a bunch of meritless legal arguments 
all of them attempting to focus on substance rather than jurisdiction and insisting that these kitchen sink objections lead the Senate to not try the case. Since they may raise these points at this juncture, I feel obliged really to address them. He may argue, for example, that he didn't receive enough process in the House. Even though the House proceedings are more like a grand jury action, which is followed later by trial in the Senate with a full presentation of evidence. Even though the evidence of his high crimes and misdemeanors is overwhelming and supported by a huge public record. Even though we're going to put that evidence before you at this trial. And even though I have a full and fair opportunity to respond to it before all of you. Even though hundreds of others involved in the events of January 6th have already been charged for their role in attacks uh, that the president incited. And even though we invited him to voluntarily come here and testify and tell his story, a request, as you know, that his lawyers immediately refused, presumably because they understood what would happen if he were to testify under oath. Regardless, President Trump's process arguments are not only wrong on their own terms, but they're also completely irrelevant to the question of whether you should hold this trial. That question is answered by the Constitution, and the answer is yes. In addition, separate from his due process uh, complaints, President Trump and his counsel, have, particularly his counsel, have boasted on TV that to counter the undisputed evidence of what actually happened in this case, you will see video clips, they'll show video clips of other politicians, including Democratic politicians, using what they consider incendiary language. Apparently, they think this will establish some sort of equivalency. But that will show in contrast that President Trump's statements that the Save America rally weren't so bad. Like so much of what President Trump's lawyers might say today, that's a gimmick. It's a parlor game meant to inflame partisan hostility and play on our divisions. So let me be crystal clear. President Trump was not impeached because the words he used, viewed in isolation, without context, were beyond the pale. Plenty of other politicians have used strong language. But Donald J. Trump was president of the United States. He sought to overturn a presidential election that had been upheld by every single court to consider it. He spent months insisting to his base that the only way he could lose was a dangerous, wide-ranging conspiracy against them and America itself. He relentlessly attempted to persuade his followers that the peaceful transfer of power that was taking place in the Capitol was an abomination that had to be stopped at all costs. He flirted with groups like the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by it while endorsing violence and sparking death threats to his opponents. And this was winning. Angry and dangerous was that wanted to keep in power, in power trying to become to be poised and reelected for violence in his direction. He then made his heated statements in circumstances where it was clear, where it was foreseeable, that those statements would spark extraordinary, imminent violence. He then failed to defend the Capitol.
president during the insurrection, engaging in extraordinary dereliction of duty and desertion of duty that was only possible because of the high office he held. He issued statements during the insurrection targeting the vice president and reiterating the very same lies about the election that had launched the violence in the first place. And he issued a tweet five hours after the Capitol was sacked in which he sided with the bad guys. We all know that context matters. That office and meaning and intent and consequences matter. Simply put, it matters when and where and how we speak. The oaths we sworn and the power we hold matter. President Trump was not impeached because he used words that the House decided are forbidden or unpopular. He was impeached for inciting armed violence against the government of the United States of America. This leads me to a few final thoughts about why it's so important for you to hear this case as authorized and as indeed required by our history and by the Constitution. President Trump's lawyers will say, I expect, that you should dismiss this case so that the country can move on. They'll assert that this impeachment is partisan and that the spirit of bipartisanship and bipartisan cooperation requires you, us to drop the case and march forward in unity. With all due respect, every premise and every conclusion of that argument is wrong. Just weeks ago, Weeks ago, the President of the United States literally incited an armed attack on the Capitol, our seat of government, while seeking to retain power by subverting an election he lost and then celebrated the attack. People died. People were brutally injured. President Trump's actions endangered every single member of Congress, his own vice president, thousands of congressional staffers and our own Capitol Police and other law enforcement. This was a national tragedy. A disaster for America's And it was on national news. And President Trump is singularly responsible for inciting it. As we will prove, the attack on the Capitol was not solely the work of extremists lurking in the shadows. Indeed, does anyone in this chamber honestly believe that but for the conduct of President Trump, that that a charge in the article of impeachment, that that attack at the Capitol would have occurred. Does anybody believe that? And now his lawyers will come before you and insist, even as the Capitol is still surrounded with barbed wires and fences and soldiers, that we just move on. Let bygones be bygones. And allow President Trump to walk away without any accountability, any reckoning, any consequences. That cannot be right. That is not unity. No. That's the path to fear what future presidents could do. So there's a good reason why this article of impeachment passed the House with bipartisan support. It has. Principles at stake yeah. belong to all Americans from all walks of life. We have a common interest in making clear that there are lines nobody can cross, especially 
the President of the United States. And so we share an interest in this trial where the truth can be shown and where President Trump can be called to account for his offenses. William Faulkner famously wrote that the past is never dead. This is the past. This just happened. It's still happening. Look mm -hmm. around as you come to the Capitol and come to work. I really do not believe that our attention span is so short, that our sense of duty is so frail, our factional loyalty is so all-consuming, that the president can provoke an attack on Congress itself and get away with it just because it occurred near the end of his term. After a betrayal like this, there cannot be unity without accountability. No. There isn't. This is exactly what the Constitution calls for. And if there is, the then there's something wrong. Understanding the chambers, this chamber's own precedent, and the very words used in the Constitution all confirm unquestionably, indisputably, that President Trump must stand trial for his high crimes and misdemeanors against the American people. We must not, we cannot continue down the path of partisanship and division that has turned the Capitol into an armed fortress. Senators, it now falls to you to bring our country together by holding this trial, and once all the evidence is before you, by delivering justice. say something personal about the stakes of this decision, whether President Trump can stand trial and be held to account for inciting insurrection against us. This trial is personal indeed for every senator, for every member of the House, every manager, all of our staff, the Capitol Police, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police, the National Guard, maintenance and custodial crews, the print journalists and TV people who were here, and all of our families and friends. And I hope this trial reminds America how personal democracy is, and how personal is the loss of democracy, too. Distinguished members of the Senate, my youngest daughter, Tabitha, was there with me on Wednesday, January 6th. It was the day after we buried her brother, our son Tommy, the saddest day of our lives. Also, there was my son-in-law, Hank, who's married to our oldest daughter, Hannah, and I, I consider him a son, too, even though he eloped with my daughter and didn't tell us what they were going to do. Um, but it was in the middle of COVID-19. But the reason they came with me that Wednesday, January 6th, was because they wanted to be together with me in the middle of a devastating week for our family. And I told them I had to go back to work because we were counting electoral votes that day on January 6th. It was our constitutional duty. And I invited them instead to come with me to witness this historic event, the peaceful transfer of power in America. And they said they heard that President Trump was calling on his followers to come to Washington to protest. And they asked me directly, would it be safe? 
safe. And I told them, of course it should be safe. This is the capital. Steny Hoyer, our majority leader, had kindly offered me the use of his office on the House floor because I was one of the managers that day and we were going through our grief. So Tabitha and Hank were with me in Steny's office as colleagues dropped by to console us about the loss of our middle child, Tommy, our beloved Tommy. Mr. Nagus and Mr. Cicilline actually came to see me that day. Dozens of members, lots of Republicans, lots of Democrats came to see me. And I felt a sense of being lifted up from the agony. And I won't forget their tenderness. And through the tears, I was working on a speech for the floor when we would all be together in joint session. And I wanted to focus on unity when we met in the House. I quoted Abraham Lincoln's famous 1838 Lyceum speech, where he said that if division and destruction ever come to America, it won't come from abroad. It'll come from within, said Lincoln. And in that same speech, Lincoln passionately deplored mob violence. This was right after the murder of Elijah Lovejoy, the abolitionist newspaper editor. And he depl Lincoln deplored mob violence, and he deplored mob rule, and he said it would lead to tyranny and despotism in America. That was the speech I gave that day after the House very graciously and warmly welcomed me back. And Tabitha and Hank came with me to the floor, and they watched it from the gallery and it was, when it was over, they went back to that office, Denny's office, off of the House floor. They didn't know that the House had been breached yet, and that an insurrection, a riot, or a coup had come to Congress. And by the time we learned about it, about what was going on, it was too late. I couldn't get out there to be with them in that office. And all around me, people were calling their wives and their husbands, their loved ones, to say goodbye. Members of Congress in the House, anyway, were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape the violence. Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us, and we were told to put our gas masks on. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram, the most haunting sound I ever heard and I will never forget it. My chief of staff, Julie Taken, was with Tapeth and Hank locked and barricaded in that office, the kids hiding under the desk, placing what they thought were their final texts and whispered phone calls to say their goodbyes. They thought they were going to die. My son-in-law had never even been to the Capitol before. And when they were finally rescued, over an hour later by Capitol officers, and we were together, I hugged them, and I apologized, and I told my daughter Tabitha, 
24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. <laughs> Of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day. And since then, that one hit me the hardest. That and watching someone use an American flagpole, the flag still on it, to spear and pummel one of our police officers ruthlessly, mercilessly, tortured by a pole. with a flag on it that he was defending with his very life. People died that day. Officers ended up with head damage and brain damage. People's eyes were gouged. An officer had a heart attack. An officer lost three fingers that day. Two officers have taken their own lives. Senators this cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government and our institutions because they refuse to accept the will of the people under the Constitution of the United States. Much less can we create a new January exception in our precious, beloved Constitution that prior generations have died for and fought for. So the corrupt presidents have several weeks to get away with whatever it is they want to do. History does not support a January exception in any way. So why would we invent one for the future? We, we close, Mr. President.
started this broadcast and I said that this could be a drier presentation today than tomorrow. Well, it, it's pretty clear that um, I think the impeachment managers didn't want, you know, didn't want to just sit here as, as he pointed out and make this a constitutional law. The impeachment manager just and remind spoke. Jamie Haskins. Senator from Rhode Island. And a break is now taking place. Chuck Todd, uh, Lester Holt, and Andrew Mitchell are speaking now. Goodman going back up the stairs 
actually right outside the Senate chamber where he then, you know, with such, such uh, insight and such um, immediate response, led the attackers the opposite way. They were only 100 feet away from the Vice President of the United States at that point in his office right off the chamber. So that's what they are trying to recreate. As we said at the beginning, it's been you know, a month and days since this all transpired, and certainly the President and his supporters are hoping that people have forgotten. They are trying to recreate the horror and the reality of January 6th. A month and... Three days, actually. Hour, hour 15, hour 20 minutes into their uh, two hours of allotted time. We expect uh, next after this break uh, to hear from the Trump lawyers as they begin to make the argument that this is all unconstitutional. Let me go to Casey Hunter's inside for some of uh, the arguments we heard there today. Can you give us a sense of the mood, uh, what it was like? I can, Lester. I, I actually was just uh, in the chamber listening to uh, Congressman Raskin as he recounted no, baby, what it was no. like for him and his family uh, to be here at the Capitol on this horrible day. And when he Hi. talked about his daughter and how she said, Dad, I never want to come back to the Capitol again, there was utter silence in the Senate chamber, complete dead silence. And to give you a sense of what it's like to sit up in those galleries, you can hear almost everything that goes on. The click of a pen, a sneeze, a cough. It's acoustically everything. You can hear everything. And all I could hear when he was talking about that moment uh, was nothing, was silence. And I think that that really gives you a sense of the weight that everyone here is feeling today, and these senators in particular, because they, of course, have to wrestle with how to decide their votes on whether or not uh, former President Trump should be convicted of what he is accused of. And I think that there are some big picture realities here that are really weighing on everyone's shoulders and some that are very personal. And big, big picture, this is a serious question about whether Congress is going to declare that they themselves have the power to hold a president accountable in the event of an attack upon themselves. changed 
because of the events of January 6th. And I think that is also something that is really coming to the forefront today. Now, will any of this really change? What, you know, I, I know, you know Trevor on the podcast, we're talking about whether the outcome here is preordained. Obviously, the political piece of this, it's remained the same for a long time. The further we get away from the events of January 6th, the more it seems that the immediate political realities are taking over and are dictating what people are willing to do or not do. But I will tell you that the way things feel here, the, the atmosphere in this building, uh, the, the looks on the faces of those senators who are paying such close attention to what Congressman Raskin was saying, it's telling a story about a group of people who are living through a moment in history where they are at least being told and shown just how important their role in history is. So I think depending on how the next couple of days go, and I think we're gonna we're gonna see what kind of impact this continues to have on these members uh, until ultimately they're gonna have to decide one way or the other whether they believe uh, that former President Trump did in fact incite the insurrection that came here on January 6th. Last Casey, you made some uh, excellent points there, and it's, it's something we need to keep in mind as we march forward. We keep talking about this as a trial, and sure, it's not like a trial. It's not a jury of, of 12 strangers who may have limited here so far, Lester, we've been talking, rightfully so, about the emotion that was presented, particularly to open and close the Democrats' case there. The Trump defense team is clearly looking to reel some of that back in uh, because of the very issues that you and Casey and Chuck and Andrea have talked about, that visceral response that that has triggered or is likely to trigger from the senators who are sitting in that room and who were in that room on January 6th. So the arguments uh, come in on a couple of fronts here. This is what we've heard just in the last, what, hour and 20 minutes or so from people connected to the Trump defense team, the former president's advisors, and so on. Part one, they're sort of arguing that that 13-minute video was cherry-picked, basically, that it didn't show certain excerpts, certain things, like, for example, former President Trump uh, saying that he suggested people peacefully march to the Capitol, for example. That is something that they've been pointing to. The second piece of this is... The defense team is trying to argue that uh, the Democrats are putting on a piece of political theater. This is something that came up in their earlier defense brief this week, and it continues to be a line you've seen and heard the phrase PR stunt, for example, from some of those allies of the former president who are looking to basically pull back some of that emotion uh, and, and particularly aiming this at the Republicans in the room, focus them back on the process argument, if you will, rather than the emotion argument. They're also previewing, we've seen now from one of the president, former president's advisors, something that may be politically risky given what we've just seen, and that is the potential that they will go after lead impeachment manager, Democrat Congressman Jamie Raskin, who we just heard from there, talking very personally and very emotionally about his experience, his family's experience on January 6th. Given, I think, some of the, the vulnerability that we're seeing from Congressman Raskin in sharing those details, that may be a somewhat risky strategy depending on how it's executed. It's something we'll watch for. What you will see now in, I think, really any minute, Lester, because uh, I think by my clock that 10-minute break is just about up, 
It is the first time now that we will see that defense team for the former president, led by two men, David Schoen and Bruce Castor. There are two other attorneys as well that will be involved, uh, less of a high-profile degree, but you will still hear from at least one of them. Uh, these are people who were not part of the initial defense team that was put together for former President Trump. These are people uh, who came on really just within the last 10 days or so to join this team. Uh, David Schoen, one of the lead attorneys, had been working with the former president for a couple of weeks before that. Why did this happen, this legal turnover happened? Because the initial group of lawyers that was put together to defend the former president parted ways with him, according to our reporting, because they did not want to make his case that there were election fraud, these false claims of election fraud that the former president has been pushing. That actually led to a split, and that's why you're seeing David Schoen, Bruce Castor, Michael Vanderveen. There is an additional attorney as well, Julianne Bateman, who we've uh, learned about that will be involved. These are people who you will now see over the course of the next 16 hours and then over the course of the rest of the week, 16 hours, although we don't expect them to take all 16 hours to make that case. When you look at the timeline of how things went down on January 6th, I imagine that one of the pieces that you will hear from both sides is what exactly was Donald Trump's response as he was sitting in the White House. You heard that it wasn't good, to be honest. It was the terriblest thing I've ever seen as an American. Fact that it's constant. The fact that people think it's constitutional on Trump's side makes me sick. They're not Americans if they think it's constitutional.
It's a constitutional problem, but it's also an American problem, not just Democrats, not just Republicans. It's everybody's problem. But most of all, it's Trump's problem. This is going to be like, um, this is going to be...
and Congressman Raskin about his family being here during. This is going to be like uh, denying everything that happened. The question is if it's constitutional. Well, if it's not, it should be. And if it is, let's continue. This is what I understand. Our founding fathers would not have let this happen. Our presidents... Before Trump would not have let this happen. Our everything that the United States have put forth 
before this insurrection would not have let this happen. It's not a Democrat or Republican problem. It's all of our problem. This impeachment trial should be all of our problems. And the fact that it is on TV and people can watch it makes it all of our problems. And if you're American, you're on the Democrat side of wanting, wanting, them, wanting them to continue. And a lot of Republicans want them to continue. But his lawyers are making a case but struggling with that case and why it should not be a thing to keep him out or impeach him and keep him out of office for the foreseeable future. Well, you know, uh, if you think that, there needs to be a little... There needs to be a... Rewrite of the Constitution. Because whatever they're doing now is right of Constitution. There's nothing wrong with what is happening. Yes, it's history. Yes, this is the second time he's been looked at. And finally out of office. But because the man does not hold office anymore, any longer, does not mean he cannot hold office in 2024. And I tell you what, as long as he doesn't hold office... In 2024 in in America, Americans are safe. The impeachment of Donald Trump trial is uh, on CNN. Uh, NBC 
MSNBC and all of the news outlets. If anyone wants to uh, hear it, a portion of it is on here. The only reason I stopped streaming it, stopped saying anything about it was because it, it was starting to get confusing again. And I can't follow something that is that is confusing. It seems a little bit rambly, rambling to me, so I just stopped following it for, for, for a while. But I got the first half of it. The first couple hours of it. Green was mentioned also in the uh, impeachment hearings or uh, the trial and what was said basically was if you can't have freedom of speech then what is Green's freedom what is freedom of speech if what Green did not say was freedom of speech then what is freedom of speech And this was referencing the uh, QAnon group and Trump's lawyers were trying to pass it off as it's okay to um have freedom of speech as far as QAnon goes but when you attack the capital and you incite riots like we saw on um, January 6th, 2021, that freedom of speech we talk about, First Amendment goes out the window. And then it is criminalized. I've got to ask this question.
after what I heard about Donald Trump and the uh, this the disgraceful act I think of the end of life for him. I think of what people might do for the end of life and what America might do for the end of life for him. I know he's our 45th president, but after he's guilty of all this, does it change the fact that he will have a, an American flag draped across his coffin when he dies? Because if you ask me, he doesn't deserve the flag draped across his coffin. And that's just my opinion. You may have something different. You may have the same opinion. But, um, I think... The honor for him just went away after seeing what happened on January 6, 2021. And even before that. So that is my question. Is he going to be buried with a flag on his coffin when he when he dies and when it's time comes? That is my question. No one knows that but he and himself and his family. But I I would think if if he was convicted which they're looking for now um conviction uh that he wouldn't he would be stripped and I hope to God he would be stripped of all of the um, the honor and all the good things that he's ever done for this country. 
sleep on that for a minute or for a minute or 24 hours or 36 hours it doesn't matter but keep that in the keep that in the mind of many people should this man become honorable and honored with a flag across himself when he passes away or not that's that's what's on my mind i'm sorry to be so dark but that's what's on my mind it's been on my mind since this happened and since Quite frankly, since uh, he took office, in my opinion, he should not have anything to do with America as far as the flag goes draped across him when he goes wherever he goes. It's quite possible that Donald Trump may be acquitted of the charges. Just depends on what they say. Just depends on what they say on Sunday. Or tomorrow. They're going to wrap things up, hopefully this weekend, because the 14th last I heard is the deadline for the 14th for the trial to end. The 14th of February is the deadline of of the trial to end. What will happen? We don't know. And we'll just have to stay in touch with CNN and reality. You know, the sad thing is that um, after all this is done, America will have some more history added to it that really does not need to be added to it. And so America will have this in the history books when children go to school and they're they will be forced to learn this stuff even when they don't want to and they're learning about it now
That scares me. And it scares everybody else and it should scare you. But I guess teachers, students that live in America need to know certain things about history. I just wish this day that they are speaking about January 6th never took place. The White House Capitol being ransacked, ransacked, and gone through by a cult leader of sorts. A cult organization. This is closing statements of the Trump administration trial. Yes, it was. With no ability, no evidence to satisfy the existing constitutional standards, what are the House managers to do? They had to make up their own law. This is not only intellectually dishonest, folks, it's downright scary. What type of precedent would be set if the Senate did vote to convict? Can Congress now ignore Supreme Court precedent on the contours of protected free speech? Will Congress be permitted to continually make up their own legal standards and apply those new standards to elected officials' speech? This would allow Congress to use the awesome impeachment power as a weapon to impeach their fellow colleagues in the opposing party. This is not a precedent that this Senate can set here today. If the Senate endorses the House Democrats' absurd new theory, you will set a precedent that will trouble leaders from both parties, literally for centuries to come. precedent to come from this case. This has been perhaps the most unfair and flagrantly unconstitutional proceeding in the history of the United States Senate. 
time in history, Congress has asserted the right to try and punish a former president who is a private citizen. Nowhere in the Constitution is the power enumerated or implied. Congress has no authority, no right, and no business holding a trial of citizen Trump, let alone a trial to deprive him of some fundamental civil rights. There was mention of a January exception argument. The January exception argument is a creation of the House managers own conduct by delaying. They sat on the article. They could have tried the president while he was still in office if they really believed he was an imminent threat. They didn't. The January exception is a red herring. It's nonsense. Because federal, state, and local authorities can investigate. Their January exception always expires on January 20th. House Democrats and this deeply unfair trial have shamefully trampled every tradition, norm, and standard of due process in a way I've never, ever seen before. Mr. Trump was given no right to review the so-called evidence against him at trial. He was given no opportunity to question his propriety. He was given no chance to engage in fact-finding. Much of what was introduced by the House was unverified second or third-hand reporting cribbed from a biased news media, including stories based on anonymous sources whose identities aren't even known to them, never mind my client. They manufactured and doctored evidence, so much so that they had to withdraw it. We only had, we had the evidence after we started the trial. They went on for two days, so in the evening I was able to go back and take a really close look at the stuff. Myself and Mr. Castor and Ms. Bateman and Mr. Brennan, we all worked hard and looked at the evidence in four volumes of books, a little tiny print. And we started, we literally had 12, 14 hours to really look at the evidence before we had to go on. And just in that short time of looking at the evidence, we saw them fabricating Twitter accounts. We saw the masked man sitting at his desk with the New York Times there. And when we looked closely, we found that the date was wrong, the check had been added. They fabricated evidence. They made it up. They never addressed that in their closing. As though it were acceptable. As though it were all right. As though that's the way it should be done here in the Senate of the United States of America. Fraud. Flat out. Fraud. Where I come from in the courts that I practice in, they're very, 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 very
very harsh repercussions for what they pulled in this trial. As we have shown, the house managers were caught creating false representations of tweets. Manipulating videos and introducing into the record completely discredited lies such as the fine people hoax as factual evidence. Most of what the house managers have said and shown you would be inadmissible in any respectable court of law. They were not trying a case. They were telling a political tale, a fable, and a patently false one at that. House Democrats have denied due process and rushed the impeachment because they know that a fair trial would reveal Mr. Trump's innocence of the charges against him. The more actual evidence that comes out, the clearer it is that this was a pre-planned and premeditated attack, which his language in no way incited. Because their case is so weak, the House managers have taken a kitchen sink approach to the supposedly single article of impeachment. They allege that Mr. Trump incited the January 6th violence. They allege that he abused power by attempting to pressure Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger to undermine the results of the 2020 election. And they allege that he bravely and endangered the democratic system by interfering with the peaceful transition of power. At least three things there. Under the Senate rules, each of these allegations must have been alleged in a separate article of impeachment. I need not remind this chamber that Rule 23 of the rules of procedure and practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials provides, in pertinent part, that an article of impeachment shall not be divisible thereon. Why is that? Because the article at issue here alleges multiple wrongs in the single article, it would be impossible to know if two-thirds of the members agreed on the entire article, or just on parts of it, as the basis for a vote to convict. Based on this alone, the Senate must vote to acquit Mr. Trump. You've got to at least obey your own rules if it's not the Constitution you're going to obey. In short, this impeachment has been a complete charade from beginning to end. The entire spectacle has been nothing but the unhinged pursuit of a long-standing political vendetta against Mr. Trump by the opposition party. As we have shown, Democrats were obsessed with impeaching Mr. Trump from the very beginning of his term. The House Democrats tried to impeach him in his first year. They tried to impeach him in his second year. They did impeach him in his third year. And they impeached him again in his fourth year. And now they have conducted a phony impeachment show trial when he is a private citizen out of office. 
No. This hastily orchestrated and unconstitutional circus is the House Democrats' final desperate attempt to accomplish their obsessive desire of the last five years. Since the moment he stepped into the political arena, my client, since my client stepped in, they have been possessed by an overwhelming zeal to vanquish an independent-minded outsider from the midst and to shame, demean, silence, and demonize his supporters. Not true. In the desperate hope that they will never, ever pose an electoral challenge. We heard one, one of the congressmen on the screen. If you don't impeach him, he might be elected again. That's the fear. That is true. That's what's driving this impeachment. When you deliberate over your decision, there are four distinct grounds under which you must acquit my client. First is jurisdiction. There is no jurisdiction. And if you believe that, you still get to say it. Two, rule 23. It had to be divisible. Each allegation had to be singularly set out in front of you so it could be voted on and to see if two-thirds of you think that if they prove that case or not. They didn't do that. you got to ask yourself why. They know the Senate rules. They got them, and so did I. Why'd they do it? Because they haven't investigated, first of all. But also, the, the what they found out as they were preparing all of this, they couldn't do it. So if they threw as much in as they could, and made as many bold, bald allegations as they could, then maybe two-thirds of you would fall for it. That's why the rules don't allow it to go that way. Due process, I've exhausted that subject. It's a really good reason for all of you, all of you in this chamber. Stop the politics. To read the Constitution and apply it to this proceeding and acknowledge that the lack of due process way over the shocking and you must not stand for it. And of course, the First Amendment, the actual facts of this case, there were no words of incitement. Four grounds. Nobody gets to tell you which ground to pick and nobody gets to tell you how many grounds to consider. Senators, do not let House Democrats take this manifold crusade any further. The Senate does not have to go down this dark path of enmity and division. You do not have to indulge the impeachment lust, the dishonesty, and the hypocrisy. It is time to bring this unconstitutional political theater to an end. It is time 
to allow our nation to move forward. It is time to address the real business pressing this nation, the pandemic, our economy, racial inequality, economic and social inequality. These are the things that we need to be thinking and working on for all of us in America. All of us. With your vote, you can defend the Constitution. You can protect due process. And you can allow America's healing to begin. I urge the Senate to acquit and vindicate the Constitution of this great republic. Thank you. No. Please don't do that. Please make him stand for what he... Senators, um, I understand I'm told we have around 27 minutes, but I will return all of that, but perhaps five back to you. There's just a few things that I need to address. And um, uh, so in an extraordinary and perhaps unprecedented... Has done to America. I will resist the opportunity to rebut every single false and illogical thing that you just heard, and I'm going to be able to return to you, you know, perhaps 20 yes, to 23 minutes. A um, few points. One, we have definitely made some progress in the last few days, because a few days ago, the president's team, although I think it was perhaps a member who has since left the team, um, lectured us that this was not This is the truth. This man has the truth. What you have heard so far is false from that other man that just came in. Involved. Again, I would love to hear that come from the president as well. Um, the distinguished counsel complains that there's no precedent with the developed body of law that the Senate has for impeaching and convicting a president who incites violent insurrection against the Congress and the government of the United States. Well, I suppose that's true because it never occurred to any other president of the United States from George Washington to John Adams, to Thomas Jefferson, to James Madison, to James Monroe, to Abraham Lincoln, to Ronald Reagan, to George W. Bush, to Barack Obama, to incite a violent insurrection against the Union. You're right, we've got no precedent for that. And so they think that that somehow is a mark in their favor. That's a score for them, that this Senate has to be the first one to define incitement of violent insurrection against the union and so the gentleman puts it on me he says inciting the president for committing incitement to violent insurrection against the union is the new raskin doctrine we try to convince him that there are well-known principles and elements of incitement which we have talked to you about ad nauseum and that this is an intrinsically, inherently fact-based judgment. But if that is the Raskin Doctrine, 
that a president of the United States cannot incite violent insurrection against the Union and the Congress, then I embrace it. And I take it as an honor. Most law professors never even get a doctrine named after them. So I, I will accept that. And finally, the council goes back to Julian Bond's case, because I think in the final analysis, their best argument, as pathetically weak as it is, is really about the First Amendment. But remember, they keep talking about stifling President Trump's speech. Someone tell me when his speech has ever been stifled. He says exactly what he wants, whenever he wants, even when you convict him for incitement and nobody shuts him insurrection, up. He will continue to say whatever he wants on that day. Remember that they referred yesterday to interference with his liberty, which I found absolutely bizarre because everybody knows that he will not spend one minute in prison or jail. Because he's rich. On these charges. It is a civil remedy to protect all of us, to protect the entire country, our children, our constitution, our future. That's what impeachment, trial, conviction are all about. Are all about. Julian Bond. See, I knew Julian Bond, so forgive me. I, most people say, don't even respond to this stuff. i got to respond to this. Okay. Julian Bond was a civil rights activist who decided to go into politics, like the people in this room, like all of us who are in politics. Um, and they tried to keep him out. He was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which really launched the voting rights movement in America. It's a great story that Bob Moses tells in his book called Radical Equations about you know, he was a graduate student in mathematics at Harvard, and he went down to Mississippi. You know why? Because he saw a picture in the New York Times of the of black civil rights protesters, college students, I think in North Carolina, AT&T, and he saw a picture of them on the cover of the New York Times, and they were sitting in uh, at a lunch counter. And he looked at the picture, and he said, they looked the way that I felt. They looked the way they felt, and he said he had to go down south to Mississippi. And they launched the voting rights movement. That's where the phrase, one person, one vote, comes from. It was not invented by the Supreme Court. They would go door to door to try to register people to vote. But anyway, Julian Bond was part of that movement. The student nonviolent coordinating movement. Nonviolence. It was the end, and it was the means. Nonviolence. And he ran for... He ran for the state legislature in Georgia, a path other civil rights activists followed, like our great, late, beloved colleague, John Lewis, who's in our hearts today. And when he got elected, they wanted to try to keep him from being sworn into the Georgia legislature. And so they said, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is taking a position against the Vietnam War. You're a member of SNCC. We're not going to admit you because you took a position against the Vietnam War. And the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, said you cannot prevent someone from swearing an oath to become a member of a legislative body because of a position that they took or a group they were a part of took before they got sworn in. That's the exact opposite of Donald Trump. He got elected to office. He swore an oath to the Constitution to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. He served as president for four years right up until the end when he wanted to exercise his rights under the imaginary January exception, and he incited a violent 
mob and insurrection to come up here and we all know what happened. He is being impeached and convicted for violating his oath of office that he took. He's not being prevented from taking his oath in the first place. The First Amendment's on our side. He tried to overturn the will of the people, the voice of the people. He lost that election by more than 7 million votes. Some people don't want to admit it. Counsel for the President could not bring themselves to admit that the election's over. In answer to the question from the distinguished gentleman from Vermont, he refused to answer that. He said it was irrelevant. Despite all of the evidence you've heard about the big lie and how that set the stage for his incitement of the insurrectionary violence against us. First Amendment, it's on our side. We are defending the Bill of Rights. We are defending the constitutional structure. We are defending the separation of powers. We're defending the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House against a president who acted no better than a marauder and a member of that mob by inciting those people to come here. And in many ways, he was worse. He named the date, he named the time, and he brought them here, and now he must pay the price. Thank you, Mr. President. <clears throat> Mr. President, majority leaders recognize Mr. President, the Senate is now ready to vote on the article of impeachment. And after that is done, we will adjourn the court of impeachment. The court will read the article of impeachment. This is where we, this is where we find out if he is guilty or innocent.
In the months preceding the joint session, President Trump repeatedly issued false statements asserting that the presidential election results were the product of widespread fraud and should not be accepted by the American people or certified by state or federal officials. Shortly before the joint session commenced, President Trump addressed a crowd at the Ellipse in Washington, D.C. There he reiterated false claims that we won't we won this election and we won it by a landslide. He also willfully made statements that in context encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action at the Capitol, such as, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Thus incited by President Trump, members of the crowd he had addressed in an attempt to, among other objectives, interfere with the joint session's solemn constitutional duty to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election unlawfully breached and vandalized the Capitol, injured and killed law enforcement personnel, menaced members of Congress, the Vice President, and congressional personnel, and engaged in other violent, deadly, destructive, and seditious acts. President Trump's conduct on January 6, 2021, followed his prior efforts to subvert and obstruct the certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election. His prior efforts included a phone call on January 2, 2021, during which President Trump urged the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to find enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results and threatened Security Raffensperger if he failed to do so. In all this, President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He threatened the integrity of the democratic system interfered with the peaceful transition of power and imperiled a co imperiled a co-equal branch of government. He therefore betrayed his trust as president to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Therefore, Donald John Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security, democracy, and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-government and the rule of law. Donald John Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. And demand that you, the said Donald John Trump, should be put to answer the accusations as set forth in this article, and that such proceedings, examinations, trials, and judgments might be thereupon had as are agreeable to law and justice. Can you turn it up just a little bit more? Not 
Yes. There are 14 guilties right now. Seven, seven, nine guilty. Yeah, but it's the Republicans that are saying guilty. The Democrats are all going to say guilty. We all know that. It's how many Republicans say guilty. And Susan Collins was definitely the one that they did not express. I don't Right. You're being right. Uh, you're on the podcast, so I just want to let you know about that. That's okay. No, I'm I'm not telling you to be quiet. I'm just letting you know. Mrs. Hyde Smith, 
The TV's getting ready to go out. The TV's getting ready to go out. Mr. Tester, guilty. Mr. Thayer, 
43 not guilties, 57 guilties. So far, folks. They just acquitted him? They just acquitted him, yes. For the whole thing? Or just one? What are you talking about? He's been acquitted. He's not guilty, according to the Senate. I thought 57 meant guilty. Am I reading that wrong? So he didn't do. No, he did exactly what he did. They just acquitted him. 
That's crazy. That's because he's got money. And... I don't know. The former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, has now been acquitted by the United States Senate on the charge of inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th in a historic 57 to 43 votes with seven That's wrong. voting to convict. Democrats falling those short of the 67 votes needed to... But I guess that's what America wanted. Time, Donald Trump has been acquitted in an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, and it's the shortest impeachment trial in American history, just five days of arguments and presentations. Ultimately, with this vote, the Republican yeah. Party signaled it's not willing to rebuke the former president with conviction. Let's go back to the Senate floor. The Senate is not in order, and the Senate will be in order. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent, the Senate being a period of morning business, with senators permitted to speak therein for up to 10 minutes each. Without objection, is forwarded. This will be part of the podcast. Mr. President, the case of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial was open. Mr. President, can we have order, please? The Senate is right. The Senate is not in order. So it will be in order. Senate will be in order. Please take your conversations off the floor. Thank you, Mr. Senator President. Senator The case of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial was open and shut. President Trump told a lie, a big lie, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful winner. He laid the groundwork for this big lie in the months before the election. He told the big lie on election night, and he repeated the big lie more than a hundred times in the weeks afterwards. He summoned his supporters to Washington, assembled them on the ellipse, whipped them into a frenzy, and directed them at the Capitol. And then he watched as the violence unfolded and the Capitol was breached, and his own vice president fled for his life, and President Trump did nothing. None of these facts were up to, up for debate. We saw it, we heard it, we lived it. This was the first presidential impeachment trial in history in which all senators were not only judges and jurors, but witnesses to the constitutional crime that was committed. The former president inspired, directed, and propelled a mob to violently prevent the peaceful transfer of power, subvert the will of the people, and illegally keep that president in power. There is nothing, nothing more un-American than that. There is nothing, nothing more antithetical to our democracy. There is nothing, nothing more insulting for the generations of American patriots who gave their lives to defend our form of government. This was the most egregious violation of the presidential oath of office and a textbook, textbook, textbook example, a classic example 
of an impeachable offense worthy of the Constitution's most severe remedy. In response to the incontrovertible fact of Donald Trump's guilt, the Senate was subject to a feeble and sometimes incomprehensible defense of the former president. Unable to dispute the case on the merits, the former president's counsel treated us to partisan vitriol, false equivalents, and outright falsehoods. We heard the roundly debunked jurisdictional argument that the Senate cannot try a former official, a position that would mean that any president could simply resign to avoid accountability for an impeachable offense, a position which in effect would render the Senate powerless to ever enforce the disqualification clause in the Constitution. Essentially, the president's counsel told the Senate that the Constitution was unconstitutional. Thankfully, the Senate took a firm stance, set a firm precedent with a bipartisan vote in favor of our power to try former officials for acts they committed while in office. We heard the preposterous claim that the former president's incitement to violence was protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment right to free speech protects Americans from jail, not presidents from impeachment. If the president had said during World War II that, quote, Germany should attack the United States on Long Island, we've left it undefended, I suspect Congress would have considered that an impeachable offense. Finally, the defense counsel said that President Trump was not directly responsible for the violence at the Capitol. Quote, his words were merely a metaphor, his directions were merely suggestions, and the violent mob was just a spontaneous demonstration. But wind the clock back and ask yourself, if at any point Donald Trump did not do the things he did with the attack on the Capitol have happened, there's only one answer to this question. Of course not. If President Trump hadn't told his supporters to march to the Capitol, if he hadn't implored them to come to Washington on January 6th in the first place, if he hadn't repeatedly lied to them, the election was stolen, their country was being taken from them. The attack would not have happened, could not have happened. January 6th would not have happened but for the actions of Donald Trump. Here's what the Republican leader of the Senate said. The mob that perpetrated the, quote, failed insurrection, unquote, was on January 6th was, quote, provoked by President Trump. You want another word for provoke? How about incite? Yet still, still, the vast majority of the Senate Republican caucus, including the Republican leader, voted to acquit former President Trump, signing their names in the columns of history alongside his name forever. January 6th will live as a day of infamy in the history of the United States of America. The failure to convict Donald Trump... Real Americans know what happened. ...in the history of the United States Senate. Five years ago, Republican senators lamented what might become of their party if Donald Trump became their presidential nominee and standard-bearer. Just look at what has happened. Look at what Republicans have been forced to defend. Look at what Republicans have chosen to forgive. The former president 
tried to overturn the results of a legitimate election and provoked an assault on our own government. And well over half the Senate Republican conference decided to condone it. The most despicable act that any president has ever committed, and the majority of Republicans cannot summon the courage or the morality to condemn it. This trial wasn't about choosing country over party, even not that. This was about choosing country over Donald Trump. And 43 Republican members chose Trump. They chose Trump. It should be a weight on their conscience today. And it shall be a weight on their conscience in the future. As sad as that fact is, as condemnable as the decision was, it is still true that the final vote on Donald Trump's conviction was the largest and most bipartisan vote of any presidential impeachment trial in American history. I salute those Republican patriots who did the right thing. It wasn't easy. We know that. Let their votes be a message to the American people. Because, my fellow Americans, if this nation is going to long endure, we as a people Congress. Because if lying about the results of an election is acceptable, if instigating a mob against the government is considered permissible, if encouraging political violence becomes the norm, it will be open season, open season on our democracy. And everything will be up for grabs by whoever has the biggest clubs, the sharpest spears, the most powerful guns. By not recognizing the heinous crime that Donald Trump committed against the Constitution, Republican senators have not only risked, but potentially invited the same danger that was just visited upon us. So let me say this. Despite the results of the vote on Donald Trump's conviction in the court of impeachment, he deserves to be convicted, and I believe he will be convicted in the court of public opinion. He deserves to be permanently discredited, and I believe he has been discredited in the eyes of the American people and in the judgment of history. Even though Republican senators prevented the Senate from disqualifying Donald Trump for any office of honor, trust, or profit under these United States, there is no question Donald Trump has disqualified himself. I believe that the American people will make sure of that. And if Donald Trump ever stands for public office again, and after everything we have seen this week, I hope, I pray, and I believe that he will meet the unambiguous rejection by the American people. Six hours after the attack on January 6th, after the carnage and mayhem was shown on every television screen in America, President Trump told his supporters to, quote, remember this day forever. I ask the American people to heed his words. Remember that day forever. But not for the reasons the former president intended. Remember the panic and the voices over the radio dispatch. The rhythmic pounding of fists and flags 
at the chamber doors. Remember the crack of a solitary gunshot. Remember the hateful and racist Confederate flags flying through the halls of our Union. Remember the screams of the bloody officer crushed between the onrushing mob at a doorway to the Capitol, his body trapped in the breach. Remember three Capitol Police officers who lost their lives. Remember that those rioters actually succeeded in delaying Congress from certifying the election. Remember how close our democracy came to ruin. My fellow Americans, remember that day, January 6th, forever. The final terrible legacy of the 45th President of the United States and undoubtedly our worst. Let it live on in infamy. A stain on Donald John Trump that can never, never be washed away. Mr. President, on Monday, we'll recognize President Part of the commemoration in the Senate will be the annual reading of Washington's farewell address. Aside from winning the Revolutionary War, I consider it his greatest contribution to American civil life. And it had nothing to do with the words he spoke, but the example it set. Washington's farewell address established for all time that no one had the right to the office of the presidency, that it belonged to the people. What an amazing legacy. What an amazing gift to the future generations. The knowledge that this country will always be greater than any one person, even our most renowned. That's why members of both parties take turns reading Washington's address once a year in full into the record to pledge common attachment to the selflessness at the core of our democratic system. This trial was about the final acts of a president who represents the very antithesis of our first president and sought to place one man before the entire country himself. Let the record show let the record show, before God, history, and the solemn oath we swear to the Constitution that there was only one correct verdict in this trial, guilty. And I pray that while justice was not done in this trial, it will be carried forward by the American people who above any of us in this chamber determine the destiny of our great nation. Thank you.